Hello and welcome to Take My Advice. I'm not using it. I am back after a couple of weeks break with the final episode of this third series. And I'll be starting the next series just next week. Next Wednesday, I'll be bringing you an interview with Will Page, who was until recently the chief economist of Spotify. So make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and also to my newsletter to listen and read more about that. But without further ado, I'm going to get into the last couple of newsletters from recent months, both of which talk about burnout and well-being, and the first of which is burnout and why well-being can't be workload. Future Work Life, number 36, written on March the 25th, 2021. There's a running theme in my newsletters of which I'm well aware. I often paint a positive picture of the future of work, which is in stark contrast to the reality that many people experience in their day-to-day lives. For the young Goldman Sachs employees who recently got together to voice their concern at the effect of working demands on their health, this is certainly true. Likewise, there are many colleagues suffering from burnout, three to six of whom per team in London are on sick leave at all times. Although companies like Goldman Sachs have a reputation for grinding people down, in exchange for substantial financial compensation and a significant career accelerant, the cause is rarely a malevolent group of people whose intention is to suck the life out of their employees. It's usually something much more straightforward, money or poor leadership. Well-being is usually well down the list of priorities, which given the more than challenging economic circumstances over the past year is to some degree understandable. After all, you could create the best culture in the world, but if your company goes out of business, it's a pointless exercise. More commonly, though, despite most people within organisations professing to value the importance of well-being, they're either unable or unwilling to create an environment in which it can realistically succeed. On the podcast a few weeks ago, I spoke to Jennifer Moss, who has spent the majority of her career writing about the psychology of work, and in particular happiness. However, over recent years, she's become a leading expert on burnout. Now, we've all heard of burnout, and the likelihood is you'll have read not just about its gradual increase before the pandemic, but its explosion since. So we're all on the same page about what burnout actually means. The World Health Organization defines it as a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. The point here is that while it affects far too many individuals, its root is within the workplace and therefore it's the responsibility of organizations to address it. During our conversation, we discussed Christina Maslach, who has spent 40 years studying the effect of burnout at work and breaks down the causes into six categories. Number one, unsustainable workload. Two, perceived lack of control. Three, insufficient rewards for effort. Four, lack of a supportive community. Five, lack of fairness. And number six, mismatched values and skills. While there's no magic bullet solution to fix burnout, I'd like to focus on a couple of observations and highlight a possible response to each. First of which is passion leads to burnout. Given the last of Maslach's causes of burnout relates to a lack of meaning or purpose in your job, and that one of the manifestations of this is cynicism, it seems rather incongruous to conclude that passion leads to burnout. Yet, as Jen wrote in another article, some of the people most at risk are those who love their jobs and those in professions that demand high levels of empathy, such as doctors, nurses or teachers. While burnout can affect anyone at any age in any industry, it's important to note that there are certain sectors and roles that are at increased risk. And purpose-driven work, that is work people love and feel passionately about, is one of them. According to a study published in the Journal of Personality, 
This type of labour can breed obsessive versus harmonious passion, which predicts an increase of conflict and thus burnout. On the Mayo Clinic's list of burnout risks, two out of six are related to this mindset. You identify so strongly with work that you lack balance between your work life and your personal life and or you work in a helping profession. Sometimes the easiest way to put an idea into context is to view it through the lens of your own work. As you might have guessed, I don't just have a passing interest in the future of work. I'm obsessed with it and spend much of my time researching and thinking about the ramifications of different approaches and models. Most of the time, of course, this is very fulfilling. However, there have been times of late that I've experienced some of the typical symptoms. And here are a few of them. Feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion. Increased mental distance from one's job. Or feelings of negativity or cynicism related to one's job. And reduced personal efficacy. In other words, the old adage that if you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life isn't always true. Burnout doesn't necessarily mean breaking down. There's a scale and it's important to recognise when you're on it so you can take preemptive action. In my case, it took a conversation with an actual burnout expert to realise it. But this is absolutely where the people you work with can step in, ideally management, but also your broader support network. The other area I want to talk about are the phases of burnout. Many of us are experiencing some degree of burnout, but stepping back to get some perspective and observing it ourselves can be tricky, which is why it requires an intervention from someone else. So to take this a step further, you might look to build a challenge network, as Adam Grant has discussed in his excellent new book, Think Again. While Grant discusses using this as a way of challenging your thinking, which is a great idea, by the way, we could benefit from this in other aspects of our lives too. Not least looking out for our well-being with some positively intended advice to slow down or take some time off. Finally, well-being can't be workload. Something Jen said during our chat really resonated with me. The idea of community at work has never been more critical, particularly for people used to congregating in offices. Research from Gallup has shown, for example, that having a best friend at work can significantly impact how engaged you are at work. Therefore, it makes sense that we attempt to create opportunities to interact with colleagues outside of typical Zoom meetings and digital comms. While well-intentioned, however, there were many cases last year where it went too far and people began finding the requirement to be on Friday Zoom cocktails a massive pain in the arse rather than an enjoyable bookend to the week. Likewise, free yoga or mindfulness sessions. While they're obviously fantastic ways to improve mental well-being and de-stress, they're not if you have to do this outside of work hours. If your work day has been getting gradually longer, the last thing you want is your manager or HR rep manoeuvring you into adding another hour to your day while you listen to Bob from sales grunting his way through a yoga flow class. There's an easy answer here, and it isn't to halt all attempts to introduce positive habits into the workday. The point is it has to be part of a workday. In other words, an hour of yoga instead of an hour of meetings. We have to draw boundaries. There should be no expectations that the time should be made up elsewhere. Plus, let people choose what they do and when they do it, it's right there at number two in the six causes. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Let's use this as a chance to change our understanding of what management is and upskill the people doing it. The idea of the flip workplace is that managers become more like facilitators and coaches. After all, elite sports coaches help their teams manage their lives and work and optimise physical and mental health because it allows them to perform better. Remember that long before it gets so bad that you're unable to work, you go through a period in which you make poor decisions and when your mood and outlook can have adverse outcomes for teams and clients. We're all now aware of the extent of burnout, so let's not just keep an eye out for the signs, but create a culture that puts well-being front and centre.
Could your business model be a threat to well-being? Future work life, number 37, written on April the 11th, 2021. Quote, COVID has moved the flexible working agenda on years. As we recover from lockdown, there's lots we can do to keep the freedoms people have gained to set their own working patterns. End quote. So said an anonymous government minister in the Times a few weeks ago. The article outlines how the government plans to strengthen employees' rights to work from home or ask for different hours. Well, it's great that the government has been paying attention, but I suggest the horse has already bolted on that one. As usual, it's market economics, plus a year of enforced remote working, rather than policy that's driven the change. In principle, of course, flexibility is a good thing for both businesses and employees. Much like the ongoing discussion about whether to have an office or not, though, I worry that we're basing what flexible work looks like on the least bad option of mid-pandemic life. I'd prefer we all showed a little more imagination since we have this unique opportunity to overhaul work completely. As my guest on this show, Christine Armstrong, said on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, the place to start is not with flexible work, it's with your entire workforce and how you put in boundaries between their life and their work. Most companies have avoided doing this because they think it's in their interest for them to work as many hours as possible. End quote. There's rightly been much more discussion in recent months of boundaries. It must be up there of hybrid in the buzzword bingo charts, at least in terms of the conversations I'm having with people who work at organisations of all shapes and sizes. There's a section on boundaries in the CIPD's recent report too, for example. As Christine alluded to, though, the truth is getting to grips with establishing boundaries between life and work is one of the easier challenges related to flexible slash remote slash hybrid work and life. Why you can't stop people from spending their spare time immersing themselves in acquiring new knowledge and skills, it's straightforward to set clear expectations about working hours with better communication management and, in some cases, smarter use of technology. The more significant challenge comes when an organisation is geared towards an always available culture and even more so when its whole business model relies on billable hours and days. Most people understand that we're in an experimental phase. We need to be comfortable testing new ways of working at an individual team and organisational level. In the week prior to me writing this newsletter, the FT reported that professional services firms have a solution to the potential problems created by overwork and blurred boundaries, perks and golden handcuffs. Something tells me that the bean counters have done the sums and worked out that although providing a new peloton bike will set you back a few grand a year, it's a whole lot cheaper and easier than spending some time rethinking job design and team workflow. Now don't get me wrong, I've become obsessed with my Peloton bike over the past six months and it definitely helped me through the dark days of the winter 2021 lockdown. I'm under no illusion, however, that it's the magic bullet when it comes to alleviating stress and improving productivity. My question is whether billability being critical to your business model incentivizes overwork. Are these businesses inherently disadvantaged in creating an environment that promotes well-being? Well, not necessarily. There are obviously plenty of professional services firms who are at least attempting to make the work of their employees better. As you'll know from previous newsletters and my conversations with Alex Sujung Kim Pang, author of Shorter, I'm an advocate of the general principle of working less in pursuit of achieving more, both in terms of overall productivity, but more importantly, the quality of the work. I therefore follow experimentation around the Shorter Working Week very closely and was intrigued by how Wylaw, a law firm in Vancouver, Canada, has approached the reduction to the four-day week over the past month. Something positive that immediately stands out is the transparency with which they've approached the process, making it very clear it's grounded in improving employee well-being and improving the level of service for clients. The latter point is crucial here, since concerns over how clients might react to a team's availability 
is the primary reason most companies reject the idea. In the case of Wylaw, it's had some immediate benefits, including feedback from staff, such as having the one day off in the middle of the week allows for a much needed recharge, which allows for me to focus and I have a lot more energy on the days I'm working. I have more energy, emotional, mental and physical. Working one day less in the middle of the week, I'm able to spend more time with my children. I'm able to accomplish things that I otherwise don't have time to do, which has been life-giving, end quotes. While the business anticipated seeing a reduction in billings of 5%, contrarily, they've seen it increase by 13%. The reason in their case is that the staff feel able to work for longer on the four remaining days, which means billable hours have increased. Almost 100% of the team have given the four-day week five stars out of five, and 80% of them said there's nothing they don't like about it. Now, if you consider the two objectives I mentioned above, while it's early days for Wylaw, the experiment appears to have been a success so far. However, I wonder whether the longer working days result in an improvement in quality. Indeed, those at Wylaw with concerns focus on the requirement to perform the same total number of hours in fewer days. So whilst I'd certainly encourage any business to explore the effect of reducing the number of working days, does this go far enough? Is a time-based approach to work fundamentally flawed, whether in the form of employment contracts or professional services firms that bill by the hour or day? Do projects with clear outcomes, for example, deliver more value and optimise expertise and efficiency? In the case of subscription or membership businesses, does the need to deliver a consistently positive experience ensure that the emphasis is always on creating value, not on the amount of time worked? All of which brings us back to the problem that comes up frequently in my conversations on how to redesign work. If you don't measure time, what should you measure? There are no shortcuts. You have to start by really understanding the problem your business solves with clients and the part each person plays. Hybrid working requires you to rethink what aspects of an individual's job and team workflow are best, either at home or in the office. Likewise, you have to take a systematic approach to make flexible work a success, what I call structured flexibility. You can read how the joint framework can help with this in my articles from January, which I linked to in the newsletter. I'd also love to hear from you about whether you've encountered any businesses that are shaking up traditional business models and what that means for improved work lives. As ever, with innovation, you don't need to turn things upside down straight away. A steady incremental approach to experimentation is often most effective. And that's true of introducing new modes of working. The positive news is that we've already started. The past year has forced us to begin the process. The priority now is to be intentional in the way we continue to test. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back next week with the show in the usual format, an interview with former chief economist at Spotify, Will Page. Until then, have a great week.